All right, my name's Eric. If you don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at our Riverdale location of Alpine Church. I am glad to be here with you. I love uh, September. I'm a summer guy. I like it being hot. Uh, I like, uh, I, I mean, I, I've, I've grown up in Utah my entire life, and I've often thought that uh, I, I'm supposed to live in either Texas or Florida where it's hot all, all year round, but the Lord has me here, you know. And they have humidity there, and, and, but I have, like, really dry skin, and I've just I've felt like practically that's where I should be. But uh, I guess I'm just going to continue to be humbled and suffer in Utah here with you guys. No, no, Utah is beautiful. I love it here. It's a great place to, to raise a family. I love the four seasons that we have. In fact, we're entering into almost September is the month where we go to fall or to autumn, um, and it's such a beautiful time, especially if you drive up in the mountains. I live in Perry, which is close to uh, Logan Canyon. If you ever drive through there, I mean, during the fall, it is so beautiful. All kinds of different colors up on the hill and everything. And, but isn't it interesting, in such a beautiful time of the year, um, that's all colorful and vibrant with beauty, uh, it stems from a process of dying. Isn't that interesting? It takes, it takes a certain, certain uh, a dying um, to bring beauty out of things that God created. Uh, I, I looked this up because I'm not smart enough to actually know this in my own knowledge, but as the seasons change, temperatures drop, and the days get shorter, uh, trees get less direct sunlight, and the chlorophyll in the leaves breaks down. The lack of chlorophyll reveals yellow and orange pigments that were already in the leaves, but masked during the warmer months. And as it grows colder and less sunlight, the leaves start to die. Now, it's, it seems a little bit unexpected that that's how things operate. But in fact, this theme is carried actually throughout all of God's word. I mean, even in agriculture, he talks about a kernel of wheat must die before it goes into the ground and, and sprouts to create more more fruit, more harvest, right? Jesus says that. Now today, I'm going to talk about something or someone that is made more beautiful and glorious through death. And that is, as we approach uh, the latter half of the book of Mark, we're actually approaching the final week of Jesus Christ's life. Now we're not there yet. We're, we're going to hit there at chapter 11. So we're finishing up chapter 10 in the next two weeks. Today, if you want to pull your Bibles out, we're going to be in uh, verse 32 through 45. And we're going to look at the journey on the way to Jerusalem, some conversations that Jesus was having with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And along the way, people uh, like Christians... Uh, and these guys that are disciples and us nowadays can learn what it is like to journey with Jesus. And oftentimes it is unexpected. For the disciples, they thought that he was heading to Jerusalem to take over the city. Because he was going to be the Messiah who was going to set up his kingship and reign in this kingdom he had been talking about all throughout the book of Mark. And so they're like, okay, I don't know what's coming. We're, we're a little bit afraid. We're excited. I don't know what's going on. But Jesus has some lessons to teach them before he gets there. Um, because when they get to that city, something unexpected 
happens to them. Likewise, as we follow Jesus and all of his commandments and, and all the things that he's called us to do as we grow closer to him and become more like him, um, he leads us through many unexpected uh, journeys in this life. And so I want to ask you this question as we start out. What are you expecting from a pursuit of God? You know, there's a lot of different ideas about, uh, about following Jesus and what it looks like. There's a lot of ideas, and then there's only one biblical idea. Let me just say that. It's very exclusive, the way in which God has laid out what a, what a journey or a pursuit of God actually looks like. But there are a lot of false teachings and arguments out there. You know, there's many ways, many paths to God. But really, no, there's really only one way, and it's the way of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if we're to be followers of Jesus, in fact, Christians, the word Christian means little Christ. If we're going to be little Christs out there in the world, do we expect that we're not going to have to go through some suffering and rejection like Christ did? Or do we think that we're going to escape the cross and get the crown? Do we think that we're going to receive the glory without any suffering. I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches us, and we're going to learn that as we look through the verses today. Starting in verse 32, they were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. As I explained a little bit in the intro, there's a couple of different groups of people following him. There's first the disciples, and then there's the other people that he's, that are maybe more distant disciples or just followers from hearing his sermons or wanting him to do more miracles. And, and he's been teaching about this so, so many times that as, as they approach Jerusalem, they're heading up a hill to make it to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And as they're walking up there, they're, they've got all these different things in their mind, like, what's going to happen? Are we going to overthrow the government? I mean, what is going to happen to me? I am afraid. And they're also in amazement at Jesus' uh, resolve that he doesn't care what lies in front of him. He knows he has a mission to do, and they are, they're filled with awe, they're filled with Fear, all these different emotions going on as Jesus and the group is heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus goes on to say, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priest and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. This is the third time that Jesus now predicts the passion, the passion of Christ. Maybe you've seen that movie or heard of that title, The Passion. Um, that word passion doesn't exactly mean what a lot of us think it means. Um, passion uh, comes from the root word uh, pati in Latin, which means to endure or to suffer. And so when we think of the passion of the Christ, we're talking about all the time of his suffering from the time he was, he was, he was sent, 
when he was delivered over to the teachers of the religious law, from the time in the garden when he was betrayed all the way to the time of the crucifixion. That is actually called, theologically, the, the passion of Christ, the time where he had to suffer for our sake. This is the third time that Jesus predicts this and tells them this. And, and along the way, the disciples are, are like slowly getting it. But they don't have the Spirit of God yet to fully comprehend. And so they're, they're a little bit slow. Um, how many people feel like that today? You're still trying to comprehend the Word of God. Like, you know, I know you don't want to raise... Oh, people are humble enough to raise their hand. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Especially when you're brand new in the faith. You're trying to read these words. You're wondering, why in the world did Jesus have to die? Why did God do it all this way? Well... You're in good company because the closest followers of Jesus felt this same way. But endure. Stick around. Keep coming back. Keep digging into the Word. Keep meeting with other Christians and believers. You know, God designed this walk, this life to be a learning process as well. A growth process, right? A a boot camp, if you will. This whole life is meant to be a learning process curve to, to figure out who Jesus is and, and how glorious he really is. I'm going to come back to these verses at the end if we have time, but this is Jesus telling them exactly what's about to happen to them. But we're going to see that they're not quite getting it or they, they're just a little bit confused about this and they want to get to what's more important to them. They're like, okay, Jesus, you keep saying this. You keep saying that suffering's going to happen, and, you know, that's, that's, that's weird. That's not really what, I, what tickles my ears. That's not really why I came to church today to hear about suffering. I want you to tell me something encouraging, something about me, right? Isn't that how we think sometimes, too? We come and we're like, I want to hear some good stuff that's going to lift me up today so that I can leave here feeling better about myself and encouraged to go t- tackle the next project or a thing I've got going on in my life. That's exactly what these disciples are like. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. This is so Funny but yet sad, because it reveals the human condition of what we really want. What we really desire is glory of our own. Yes, we want, we want Jesus to get the glory too. You know, many of us would admit that, yes, we, want, we, we love Jesus. We love what he's done for us, but we also want some of his glory, right? We want to to have some center stage, some of the spotlight. We want to have some accolades. We want to be at the end of our life and be able to tell our kids something great about ourselves, leave a legacy. I hear that word all the time, legacy, Um, you know, that people talk about, leaving a legacy. And that's what James and John want. In fact, their their mother wants that for them in another translation or in another gospel um, it says that the mother came up to Jesus and, and was questioning Jesus about this. It's funny because if you look at how they walk up to him, they're still like little children. Um, 
That's why their mother had to come ask. But in this, in this one, they also asked as well. But it says, teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. In another translation in the ESV, it says, we want you to do whatever we ask. Have you ever had a kid, your kid at home, do that to you? Like, dad, mom, I'm going to ask you for this thing, and I want you to say yes. And you're, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, gullible, you'll just say, okay, what is it? And then they'll ask for something outrageous, and you're like, man, why did I say yes? Jesus is too smart for that. And he says, I'm not going to grant your request until you actually make it known to me what you want. And so they reveal their hand. They reveal that they desire glory. They desire fame. They desire the crown to be king with him almost. Jesus goes on to say, but Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Now, this is interesting. Jesus uses this language, a cup. We just took a cup, by the way. And what in that cup was represented? It's blood. And what had to happen for that, that blood to be spilled? He had to be tortured. He had to be beaten. He had to be mocked and whipped and killed, right? And so the cup represents death and suffering. And Jesus says, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? Oftentimes in the Bible, uh, there's this idea of a cup, and sometimes it's a cup of blessing, uh, a cup of oil that, that overflows, that runs over in Psalm 23. But in other, in, in most cases, when talking about this cup that Jesus brings up, it's about judgment. It's about God's wrath being poured out. In Isaiah and Jeremiah, it talks about a cup of wrath being poured out on the nations as judgment. And actually, in the, in the New Testament, If we fast forward in the book of Mark to the beginning of the passion of Christ, Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane says this, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what what I will, but you will. What Jesus is saying is he's about to drink a bitter cup of God's wrath, of God's suffering. And if you know what the gospel is all about, the gospel, the good news is is Jesus Christ takes on God's wrath on our behalf. Because the Bible says that we're all sinners and we cannot be made right with God Unless we are forgiven by God, right? And so the only way to be forgiven by God was this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Many of you that have asked questions, why did Jesus have to die this way? Well, the Old Testament is pointing towards this sacrificial system of holiness that God had established Thousands of years before when he called the first nation of Israel to follow him. And this sacrificial system said that that something had to die in the place of people for their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins. 
And so when Jesus brings up this cup, it's this cup of suffering, God's wrath being poured out on him, the judgment that sinners deserve. You see, because unforgiven sinners will be judged. There will be wrath stored up for them in the end. And they will go to a place called hell where they are separated from God and tormented forever and ever. That's why it's important that we get this message out, by the way. We're not just you know, gathering together to sing kumbaya. We're gathering together to encourage one another in the faith, to teach one another so that we can be sent out, we can know what we're telling other people about Jesus. This is, this is a serious thing. And we don't know how much time is left on the earth. And so that is my exhortation to all of us. I implore us all to take this so seriously. But Jesus... He talks about, are you able to go through what I'm about to go through? And the reality is this, no. No one can atone for the sins of mankind like Jesus could because Jesus is the only person that is both fully God and fully man. So the answer is no. No, you cannot go through what I'm about to go through. But let's look at their answer. They say this in pride. Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Now, they're not totally wrong in asking to be sitting on thrones next to Jesus. Because Jesus had already told them that actually there are going to be thrones in heaven where they're going to be judging the unbelievers there are going to be thrones in heaven that, that Jesus had talked about. Revelation talks about uh, the thrones in the worship uh, gathering of God in heaven. There are thrones where the disciples and the prophets will be sitting on these thrones. So they're not completely wrong. But they don't know what they're going to have to go through to get there. And I think that that is our problem sometimes, is we don't expect the journey that God has prepared for us to get to this place called heaven, to be with God forever. We don't expect that. We don't want to hear about the suffering, about sharing in a cup of suffering with Jesus in, in persecution in rejection, and by the way, that when he talks about baptism, he's just talking about an immersion. The word really means to be immersed into suffering. The fullness of his body, it was a, a complete and utter torture for him to be killed the way he was on the cross. But for them, they are desiring glory. Um, and something interesting about James, James and John... James indeed will be the first person to die, uh, the first apostle. He's not the first martyr for Christianity. That was Stephen. But James was the first apostle to die. In Acts 12, 1 through 3, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. You see, Jesus was all making another prediction that you will indeed have to drink 
some of this cup of suffering. Not in the same way that Jesus did, but you will need to do that. And so, so here's how it applies to us today. It's If we look at the follow, first followers of Jesus, all of them were persecuted and all of them died. James was the first apostle and John was the last apostle to die for Christ. And being rejected and chased around all over the place, uh, having to endure through all kinds of challenges and trials, through, through church planting and making disciples and all of that, I think the thing that is unspoken of in most Christian churches is that same thing is included in yours and my journey with Jesus Christ as well. Now, it may not look like theirs. No, we're, in America, we're not getting our heads lopped off and people telling us to, you know, believe in Allah or whatever, like the, like's happening in other countries across the world, by the way, um, in many other countries, Christians are being killed every single day. For, and and just, just for not being willing to say, no, I will not recant and say, I don't believe in Jesus. This is what people are being killed for. And here in America, I love our country. You know, it was, it was founded on, on Christian principles, and, 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 and there's a whole historical story of imperfect but but men who desired to have religious freedom started this country. But, you know, part of the problem with the way things are is that it's still a part of the world. This isn't heaven. We cannot make heaven on earth anywhere. It's just not going to happen. We need to realize that we can't make this. America isn't our little commune for Christianity. And, in fact, you're seeing that now. It's happening uh, our whole country is, is, is turned into this battleground between, uh, you know, post-faith, post-Christian ideas versus the, the people who want to hold on to the faith. That's what's going on now. And maybe there will be persecution. But my question is, is, is where will you be at? Like, what will be your resolve? Who is going to tell you that you may have to endure or go through things? Or even if you're not persecuted... The other idea of suffering is having to give up your old life. Jesus said, those who follow me will have to take up their cross daily, die to themselves, is what he said, and follow me. You know how hard it is to choose to die to yourself every day? Do you know what that means? It means all the passions and the worldly desires, the things that are naturally built into me, the ambitions like James and John had uh, that, that sometimes leak out, the things that are not in God's will, that have nothing to do with God, that aren't going to bring any God any glory, but really just bring us glory. God is saying, kill those things off, die every day, lay down all of your desires and your wants and your worldly passions, and even the sin that we so love, the pleasures in this world that we so love, Jesus is saying, you've got to lay those down. And when we do that, there's a form of suffering that happens to say no to my flesh. To say, no, I want to do this thing. It would feel really good. It's natural to me. But yet God wants me to suffer from not wanting to do that and follow him. So there's two ways people suffer. It's through persecution in faith and sharing their faith with other people and being rejected and, 
And there's also the suffering of having to live in this body as a Christian and having our desires pulled two different directions. I can follow me or I can follow Christ. Those are the, that's the suffering that we have to go through. Now, one of those things, both of those things, in fact, are, are God's will that we suffer in both of those ways. It reminds me of uh, a story that I heard recently. I read recently about a mother uh, taking two of her sons to uh, Super Wally World, which is what I call Walmart, by the way. But uh, they go to Walmart, and they're hanging out and, and shopping, and they get to this aisle before the checkout, and they see those glow sticks on, on the aisle. And the toddler, there's a toddler, and then there's about a nine-year-old with the mother, and the toddler starts pointing at those glow sticks, and he's crying, and he's just throwing a huge fit. It's obvious that he wants these glow sticks, and so the mother grabs the glow sticks, lets him hold them, and she's resolved, okay, I'm going to buy these. So he, he won't throw a fit. But then he keeps pointing at him, and he's trying to rip the bag, and he, he, it's obvious that he wants in there, so he's throwing more and more and more of a fit. And so the mother has the audacity, before she actually buys the package, to open it and give him one. Have you ever done that, moms? That doesn't make you a bad person, by the way, to let the kid have the candy before you actually bought it, right? You're going to buy it, right? Anyway, so she gives him the glow stick, and he's, he's quit throwing a fit. He's content now. But the older kid comes along and takes the glow stick away. And he starts crying again, and he's throwing this huge fit. But the kid breaks it, bends it, and hands it back to him. And the mother asks, why did you take the glow stick from him? And the kid so wisely answered, said, well, it had to be broken in order to shine bright for him. That's the same thing that God wants to do in you and me. Sometimes in our, our, our struggle in life, fighting against sin and sometimes being broken, sometimes being rejected and beaten and, and, and discouraged because of our faith, we're broken. We're broken inside, mentally, emotionally, maybe one day even physically. But just like Jesus Christ's body needed to be broken... And his blood to be spilled so he could shine bright for the world, be the light of the world. So too, he wants that from his followers as well. And this is a tough task. This is a tough sell for me as a preacher to, to leave you with this, this, this Sunday. Is that this is the life that God has called you to do. It may be an unexpected journey. Things may happen that you'd, you weren't planning on. I mean, that happens, it comes out in all kinds of different ways. You know, maybe it's in marriage. In marriage, you know, God said uh, that the husband ought to lay down his life for his wife. Does that sound like suffering? It is. Laying down your life, laying down the husband's, hey, I'm going to beat up on men for a little bit. We have all these goals and ambitions, right? Sometimes delusions of, of grandeur to be great, and our wives sometimes are left in the wake of waiting for us to turn and make them a great goal of ours. But the, the Bible says to lay down your life. You've got to lay down and suffer some of the things that you want 
in order to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Peter, who was a mentor to Mark, says it like this in his later writings. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Paul says it in Romans, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A guy named Roger Staubach, I don't know if many, I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan, but I was reading about him. Um, He's a, a quarterback for 11 years, and he was asked once, how do you keep playing you know, with all these injuries all the time, how do you keep on keeping on? And he said, he said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. That's what he said. Likewise, I, I take from that is if we're not playing hurt, if we're not out there in the world suffering for Christ in some way, shape, or form, we may have to question, are we really living for Christ to serve him as our king, as our master? Are we really playing the game that he's called for us to live? It goes on in the text. This is the last verses. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They're mad because they're not in on it. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To be a servant does require suffering. And he uses even a stronger word than servant on down. He, it starts to compound and get more intense when he says, whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave. That means your rights are going to be taken away. You're not going to earn anything for the things that you do for the one that you serve. But if you want to be great, this is what you're called to be. Not to live for yourself, to live in comfort all the days of your life, but called to be a servant and slave of our master and the servant of others as well, lifting them up. It is an upside-down kingdom. It is backwards. And I'm sorry for all of the teachings that are out there that never focus or reveal this truth to their churches and their people. The truth is there will be suffering in following Christ, but it's only temporary. It's only for a moment. We have not yet endured suffering to the point of being crucified like our Savior has. And so I tell you, it's worth it. Because that last word that I have underlined, he ransomed us from our slavery to sin. Our slavery to our selfishness. Our slavery to Satan himself. Jesus 
gave his life as a ransom payment for us to satisfy the wrath of God so that we do not have to be under his wrath, but we can be under his grace and his mercy forever and ever. And that should be what propels us to go on to live this life, telling others about him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning thankful. Thankful that you would give up your own son. I can't even, I can't even fathom or imagine the, the, the suffering, the spiritual anguish that Jesus had to go through, that the Father would have to go to to watch this happen. I mean, it's, it's not often talked about, Lord, but it, it does not, our suffering does not even compare to that. Lord, so let us count our blessings when we have life easy and comfortable, but let us also seek to work for you, to glorify you, to tell others about you when we have those opportunities, Lord, and we're afraid of being rejected or mocked. Help us to share the gospel. When we have those opportunities to sin and we're tempted to sin, help us to kill our flesh and to suffer in that way so that we can follow you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.